Hello everyone, I'm Deborah, New Narrative's Membership Engagement Coordinator. Refugee children in Malaysia are denied access to the formal education system. This leaves informal community-based learning centres as their only option. On this episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, I speak to Toy San Nukum, or better known as Sam, who is the director of the Kachin Refugee Learning Centre, and Abira Abdullah, a Fuji School alumni and the co-founder of Project Standout. We talk about what their own educational experience in learning centres here in Malaysia has been like and the impact the pandemic has had on the informal education system for refugee children. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Memberships start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. Or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. So thank you both for joining me on the show today, Sam and Avira. Sam, you're the director at the Kachin Refugee Learning Center, which provides holistic education for the children from Myanmar re- refugee families. And Abira, you're a Fuji School alumni and also the co-founder of Project Stand Up, which focuses on improving access to and participation in education, particularly for girls. So maybe I'll start with you, Abira. What motivated you to form your own organization, Project Stand Up, and how did that project come about? Thank you so much, Deborah. Um, sure. So Project Stand Up was actually um, an initiative that we have started in 2016 while we were student at Fiji School. And the inspiration and the reason why we um, came up with this Uh, you know, actually making it an organization is because we have noticed some gender barriers for uh, girls inside our classroom to participate um, because we have noticed there were less girls attending school because of household tasks that they have to do at home and, you know, competing responsibilities, we call. So we have designed a program, our first program, called the Champion Education Program to solve uh, this problem. And we are a group of eight young people, and we also have two adults mentors who help us um, in, uh, you know, making our decisions as well. So we, we started actually thinking about making this an organization after our first program and after the success we have noticed, um, you know, it had in our community. After that, we have designed our second program called Champion, uh, sorry, called Youth Leadership Program. And this program focuses on providing soft skills education, um, not hard skills, for example, public speaking, public speaking, you know, problem solving, critical thinking, and all uh, that uh, soft skills. And then after we have noticed, you know, um, many young people in our community needed those soft skills. And uh, we have decided to uh, do it again and launch it, you know, always improving it. And um, this time around, um, because of the pandemic, we are doing our program online, uh, fully online. Fantastic. So, you know, I want to turn this question to both of you. 
both of you have the experience of coming to Malaysia as refugees. And I wanted to ask, what have you heard from others in a similar situation about what drives refugees to come to Malaysia? Or maybe what, you know, in your own experience is a factor that led for you to come to Malaysia? Ah, okay. Because I came from Myanmar and because of the situation there is like mostly the same like today. And it's like uh, because of the post labor and because of the civil war and there so many people need to flew from there to get a safer life. Uh, so that's why they came here. Actually then, um, I have to say that we don't have any chance since other chances then uh, we have like a many neighbors country, neighboring countries, but uh, unfortunately they are not accepting us. So that's why uh, we, we, we couldn't have other choice than come to Malaysia. And we found that uh, we also safe here. That's why many people from our country came to Malaysia. So in your experience, Sam, relative to other neighboring countries, in the region, Malaysia was the safest option? Yes, I can say that because it's like, you know, we have like many other people who are in the same situation like us are staying here. So uh, we can be able to contact. Uh, actually, it's like uh, we are from the, mostly of our people are from the Christian uh, uh, Christian religion. So uh, we contact that to the church and all that. So they have uh, help us with to uh, channel channel to us to come to Malaysia. So that's why we also have uh, like a community here and also like the Malaysian, uh, the area that we stay in also are safe rather than uh, compared to our country. Thank you, Sam. And, and what about you, Abira? Yeah, um, I, it's pretty much like what Sam said. The reason why, you know, most refugees are here is for their safety. For example, um, I was, I'm from Somalia and I was born in Saudi Arabia and I was actually raised there. But for some situations, we had to leave Saudi Arabia. We couldn't stay there any longer. And we had, you know, only two options really, um, which is go back to Somalia, which is really not safe there. Um, especially in the recent times right now, it's situations are even getting worse or come to Malaysia. But yeah, so the reason why we are staying here as refugees is because we don't have the options of going back to our home countries. That's almost impossible. Um, it will put us in real danger. Right. Thank you for, for explaining that. And so both of you run or are teachers at centers for refugees that focus on their education and building their skill set. Just now, Abira, you mentioned that Project Stand Up focuses on soft skills um, for the for the the beneficiaries of your organization. But like many education institutions, refugee learning centers and services have been greatly affected by the pandemic. Can you tell us more about how your centers have been affected? Uh, for our center is like uh, basically the physical all the mid, uh, all the classes run by the physically have to stop. So the all the students need to be online, 
which is very, very, very challenging for the teachers, uh, using the tools and the technology to teach online classes. Because if there is no online classes, we don't have, we cannot run any other classes at all. So teachers need to be adept to that the new and the modern technology like Zoom applications and using the you know internet lines, using the internet line and via the uh, like the laptops or the phones or uh, how can we run and how can we use effectively with the Zoom application and all that. So we need to take times. It's like about like one one month. And before that, we don't have any ideas that we don't even know that there is a Zoom apps that we can use for our online classes. So because of the pandemic and COVID and MCO and here, uh, we have no other chance than using the apps. Uh, some of the teachers have difficulties like in uh, how to use and how to use the apps easily. So we have to teach, we have to guide each other uh, to be able to do it. And also in the other hand, uh, we also need to share to the parents the parents are also very lack of the technology uh, we do, uh, but uh, we we have no other choice. And uh, but we have to share our information how to use this app, and also the students as well. But the students are very very uh, brilliant that they are very easy to pick up all the app rather than adults. So uh, we are so glad that they can be able to use it. Uh, they can be able to use it like uh, very uh, fast and also. They, they know how to uh, do uh, how to how to do and how to open and how to share the link and all that. So they are also very able to adopt, including the we can also say that including the preschool students as well. So, uh, but that is our challenges at the beginning. But later on, and when the time is has been like uh, running smoothly, uh, then we the class the. The time has been like longer time, then we can be able to run our classes smoothly. But uh, the, the major problem for our teacher side is checking the homework, giving the homework and exercises, and uh, that, that are still a challenging for our teacher sides as well. And the second one is the spacing. Previously, we can use the church hall in our area in Bukitindang. Um, but because of the SOP and the MCO still continuing, so until today we don't have a chance to go back in and use the uh, the church hall. So we have to we have to have rent out the the extra spaces. But when the MCO come back again, and we cannot use the uh, our school premises, the new places, at, and all other premises have to be closed. Uh, as we have to follow the government's. Uh, instruction. So this is like an extra financial that problem that we have to be able to, uh, we cannot be able to like uh, cover up all the gaps that we have. So, and also like a, the children and also the teachers, because we are using the 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 phone and also like a laptop and all that. So it is like a, uh, we are taking more time using the screen. So it is affect to our eyes. So some of the children need to like wear the glasses and also like the teachers as well. So we also need to be, uh, how to say, aware of ourselves and uh, remind each other not to use the phone or not to use the screen at all times, something like that. So this is like a difficulties that we are facing because of the COVID and MCO from our right. center. So problems in, in many different ways or challenges in many different ways. Um, and what about you, Abira? So you mentioned earlier that this is the first time Project Stand Up is carrying out its services online. 
How was Project Stand Up affected by the pandemic as well? So for our programs, um, the most uh, you know part that is really affected by the pandemic is when we do community outreach. Our programs are mainly focused on you know solving problems, um, you know finding problems and etc. within communities. So we really use a lot of human centered design processes where we have to go out and ask uh, members of the community surveys and questionnaires and etc. So we had one program that we have designed, but we have we couldn't do the uh, pilot for mm-hmm. it, uh, which is called CCF program, uh, Community Connectivity uh, Project. Um, we have done the training for the youth, but when once you know the pandemic hit, we had to uh, stop, and we couldn't find any alternatives for you know how the uh, young people are going to go out. With their, I mean, in their communities and uh, basically conduct the trainings and how to use the app, etc. And that is one uh, challenge that we faced at the beginning, and uh, we are still, you know, uncertain how we are going to uh, further implement our CCF project. Uh, however, we have another project that you know I spoke about uh, called the Youth Leadership Program. Uh, this project is mainly focused on teaching young people the skills, and because of its focus, we could do it online. Um, although at the end of the project, members of the program will have to do also a capstone project to have, you know, uh, design uh, whatever solution um, or from a problem that they choose. And uh, currently, uh, we are doing it online. We are just, you know, at the start of the program. Um, so hopefully, uh, we are going to manage it online. Um, the most difficult part that, you know, Sam mentioned with, you know, using technology, it's also very similar to us, where, you know, having internet connection problems with some members, you know, uh, making it hard for them to, communicate or attend some of the sessions and and many problems, you know, facing, I mean, uh, problems like with the schedules of the members, um, um, almost uh, everyone, like uh, all our members are having some extra classes or, you know, schools, courses to do, and they are also, you know, managing it with this program. Um, yeah, I think that is the main challenges we're affected. Oh, and uh, I forgot the main thing also. Uh, it was when we first, you know, were recruiting for our project online. It was really, really hard to find people to attend our program. Uh, we tried to reach people using our network. And, but however, compared to how we used to recruit and now recruiting online is way difficult um, and it kind of limited us from you know reaching uh, people particularly girls it was you know very hard to uh, have more girls attend our programs so you know yeah you both touched on how you weren't able to maybe reach people you normally would have or that the the fact that you needed to use technology face gave new problems 
Um, so Sam, what do you think are some of the long-term effects of the lack of access to quality education for refugee youth that maybe has come about because of the pandemic? What happens to children who can't access a quality education? Yeah, it's from my experience, some of the students have been dropped because of the financial and also because of the access. And you know what? Sometimes our students uh, who are like uh, teenagers, even though they are in a center, they do part-time because they don't have any spawn, uh, like, a, like, a, like a guardian or who can able to support them from behind. So they have to work part-time and also attend the classes when like a normal uh, before the COVID time. And, but because of the COVID time, they cannot go out for like a part-time and order so they, uh, they can be able to drop easily. So we do have a few of them. And for like, uh, so that once, even though they wanted to come back to a regular classes that they are in, but they, we can, they cannot be fit in that classes already because all the, their friends or the classmates have been like passed through a one year and uh, attend the new classes already. So they have to join in back to the younger one, and it, which is like a very, how to say that, lack of their emotion that they wanted to motivation that they wanted to study more. So normally they don't come back at all. Even they try, we, we do have a few students who come back uh, from the previous year that they don't join and come back, but then they stop just only a few weeks after our school started. So that, that is a long term that if they are not joining with the school uh, and also they, they are like, a, how to say, they, they are not continuing with the study, means that it is not, it is, there is no turning back for them. So they, even though they wanted to turn back, then how to say, only their mind has, but the, the physically they cannot adapt the lessons and the children that they need to study together are much younger than them. So those kind of emotion that they are, they have. So normally they drop more easier. I mean, the easier than the other normal kids. So that's why I, I always tell them that the parents and the students as well, if you have a problems, then don't give up the school. But we do have some, we cannot, we cannot uh, just stop them, stop them for, uh, how to say, uh, leaving the school because of the problems with their financial, which is very uh, major problem. And we also cannot be able to cover from our center as our centers also been facing the same problem. Yeah, that, that is a long term that if they don't join in, in or they are, they are like being stopping and because of the many reasons to come to school. So it, it is the problem for the children and the young adults young, young adult as well. So even a, a short-term disruption or interruption of their education could mean maybe the end of them attending school? Yeah, we can say that because it's not, you know what, even just the started is like the COVID started in March, right? Then uh, we are waiting for the school to be reopened the whole year, but just only a few months. But even just only like March, April, May, June, after July, August, then after that, then we can be able to run our tickets. But that three months, some of the students can't be there to stand without any income. So that is just only to find out for the students, find out view some of the younger or young adult students. But for the parents, we all have the same situation as well. If there is no income, then they cannot pay for their school fees. 
they only need to focus on their rental fees and the food expenses for the food and the rental fee, not for the school fees. So we have to be like discounted, like uh, some of the like fifty percent or seventy percent or something like that. That uh, we 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 just have to be like uh, how to understand to the parents and uh, from the school, whatever that we can be able to uh, help them. Then we just find ways to help them. But still, there are some a few that are. Uh, drop off, dropping off from our centre, but uh, most of them are still with us. Um, thanks for that that explanation. Um, Abira, as a student who has is a refugee as well, could you talk about what your experience with education in Malaysia has been like? What were some of the challenges that you faced? So I first came in Malaysia when I was 16 years old in 2017. And uh, late 2016, well, beginning of 2017. And when I first came uh, in, I was enrolled in Fuji School. And it is where I completed up to, you know, grade nine. Um, the school provided only up to grade nine um, for secondary education, which is the case for many, many schools in Malaysia where access to you know, uh, high school uh, education is extremely hard and um, only very limited centers provide that opportunity. And even those centers that provide those opportunities have an age limit of 18 and below. You cannot access, I mean, yeah, do, uh, for example, an IDCSC um, program uh, if you are 18 and above. Yeah, so it was extremely hard for me to continue my you know, high school education as most of the uh, learning centers in uh, most of the refugee learning centers don't have that capacity and ability to kind of lead these uh, high school programs for young people. But currently, uh, from what I know, at least Fuji School is uh, piloting their first high school program, which is uh, GED program to have general high school certificate for young people who graduate from Fuji school, uh, which is, I believe, you know, it's a great step for at least uh, combating these uh, problems. Uh, it is a first time program and I hope it works out and all refugee learning centers also adapt and do um, the same. Um, so currently, I am just doing an online course right now. And I mean, if the high school's accessing high school education is that hard, accessing tertiary education like university is even way, way harder. Um, there are very few people who study in universities that are refugees. And that is mainly because, um, you know, as a refugee, because we are not granted or acknowledged as refugees living in Malaysia, it's very hard for universities to also acknowledge you and, um, you know, accept you to study in. So, yeah, I mean, from primary education up to, uh, I think, most of the learning centers focused on that. Uh, even with that, you know, they face difficulties with, like Sam mentioned, um, so up, you moving from high school till university is um, an area that is um, usually not look looked into because of all the difficulties, you know, 
uh, young people have. So what you just touched on, Avira, is the lack of legal recognition that refugees in Malaysia experience, which is that Malaysia uh, does not recognize refugees legally. So I want to turn this question to Sam. How does that lack of legal recognition for refugees impact children's access to quality education? And also, how does it impact the learning centers that serve them? All right. Uh, because of the Ill- illegal status in Malaysia, um, even though we are running the learning, learning center, but only the protection under the units here. So I've been experienced once that DBGL come and summon us because we our one of the building is uh, one center is under the like on the ground floor. So the DPG can easily came in and put the sticker on it. And after that then they put a summon to us and saying that you are opening the school illegally. So we have to trace back again and appeal and with some of the friends lawyer to uh, help for me and all that. So uh, the, the, the the local lawyer that they are really, really uh, generous to help us with, with their all of their hearts. So, but uh, since from that time, then uh, we don't get any information from the DVGL and no, no more new someone after that. But I, I just wanted to raise out this one. It's like we are still illegal, even though we are under the protections of the UNHCR, we are still illegal under the eyes of the, um, the Malaysian government. But that, that is the because of the, we are not uh, recognized by the, uh, the Malaysian government. But... Uh, so that's that we cannot be able to like uh, even though we run the centers we have to be aware of what that, uh, we shouldn't do what we should do or something like that and so it, it, it one challenging from a refugee side and also and for the st- uh, students and uh, like uh, all the teachers uh, so it's like uh, we can be able to sit the government exam in this country as well so we have to find out the way that what we can be able to do and what we can be able to assess our students and all that internationally. So just like uh, Abira said that uh, our center are doing the GED, right? So from our center, we are doing the IGCSE to be able to adapt the quality education uh, internationally that what we can do for our children. So, but we, we can the first batch in 2019, we cannot be able to uh, set that exam every year. And so it's like a, like three years in one time, then we can be able to sit. So it is like a, now uh, the second time we are going to sit this year. We hope that we could be able to sit the exam in this year, but I'm not sure yet because of the COVID and MCO and all that, even though we do the online studying, but uh, we have to be very make sure that they are be able to uh, sit that exam. So it's like a other legalization, like uh, just like Abira said, that the tertiary education, which is very, very far beyond that, uh, our dreams. Even after finishing our IGCSE, where do we go? Uh, which university that can be able to attend or something like that? It is also a challenging for a refugee people because it's like uh, for the our status, is even though we are holding our UNHCR card, we are not allowed to go in uh, like a normal other students. So it's the tertiary education is also a very 
are very challenging. And after we're finishing and we don't know where, so this is our challenging with the illegal status in Malaysia. Yeah, so that there seems to be, you know, a real limitation to how much access children can have to education, even when, when they really desire that. Um, Abira, how are refugee girls particularly disadvantaged when it comes to access to education? Um, so refugee girls uh, in particular have, you know, kind of not the same access compared to boys when it comes to education because of some gender stereotypes and gender norms imposed by, you know, the community, society and, you know, um, elder people that, you know, in some, for example, in some societies, they believe that uh, girls should just complete primary and then, you know, after that she should get married, I mean, marry someone and then just sit for her house and take care of her kids, etc. And this belief is, you know, on it's not just in one community, it's in almost, um, you know, many communities that share that. Um, and so having also, you know, the belief, having girls assigned a role to be just at home and boys having, you know, assigned them a role just to work and um, take care of the finance and etc. itself, it poses, you know, a very difficult time for girls to pursue education. Um, for example, if I am a girl, I'm expected to cook and clean, take care of the children of my home and on top of that study. If I'm a boy, let's say you you don't you have more freedom with regards to how to manage your time because you're not expected to cook and clean and take care of the children and all that other roles assigned to girls. So we call this uh, task like competing task um, for girls to have and then the way we in our program uh, champion education program uh, we have kind of uh, designed our solutions okay so how to tackle this problem is through showing their community that boy, both boys and girls can do the same task and through sharing responsibilities for example in the household and how does projects oh sorry how does project stand up work to promote access to education and opportunities for refugee girls so through our programs uh we believe you know we want to give um equal opportunities, equal access to both uh, boys and girls to have, you know, um, equal participation basically in schools and etc. We want more young people uh, speak up and participate and designing solutions and becoming leaders in their communities. Um, the way we, we do it, um, so we are not like a school teaching, you know, the hard skills, as I said, we teach soft skills, for example, building confidence in uh, young people to, you know, pursue their dreams and all that. And that itself will have, you know, a positive effect into their school life where they will be able to participate much more and speak up, you know, having that confidence to share their ideas. Thank you. Um, Avira. In January, New Narrative published a long-form journalism piece on refugee education written by Emily Fishbane and Jaw Tu Kwong. 
which we'll link in this episode. The piece made such an impact that readers made donations to some of the centers mentioned in the article, including Project Stand Up. Can you tell us about how the new donations have helped your beneficiaries? Yes, sure. Um, actually, you know, thanks to the donation that came in through uh, the piece published, um, it helped us reach our goal of having, you know, enough money to basically do our project online. Um, you know, in terms of we wanted to have uh, the tools ready when we want to deliver our program online, for example, having Zoom in its subscription and all that. We also want to have, you know, um, some small grants for our members to design their capstone project, to have the ability to manage a budget, you know, teaching them all that kind of things that a project would need to have. So it did help us a lot in terms of, you know, achieving um, what I mentioned right now. I'm really happy to hear that. Um, so, you know, I mean, this is a question either of you can answer. Um, what do you think the Malaysian government can do to improve access to quality education for refugees in Malaysia? That is only my opinion and my my request to the government. If even though that we are illegal here, and just like uh, wanted to thank first that because it's like even though we are like a, a illegal status in Malaysia, but they do uh, let us in. And also, they do let us stay here for many, many years. And uh, apart from uh, after, uh, uh, even though we are like a illegal status, then we have to, uh, we can stay here safely, and rather than in my country. Uh, and also, uh, one thing that I just like to request to the government is like, uh, please accept us for the education, for the further study. Because it's like from our learning center, we can be able to do only for like a secondary. It's the maximum that we can be able to uh, support our students. But after that, then they don't have any other dreams that they can be able to hope for it. Um, because we are staying here for quite long and the, our processing have been very slow. And so our students are getting older and older here. So that's why they wanted to study further more education, like a tertiary education and all that. So uh, we can only do for them, it's like an IGCSE O-Lover is the highest level that we can be able to do from our center. So if the government can be able to open up the spaces for our, our refugee children to be able to attend the tertiary education, that would be our, our very big dreams for our students. Thank you so much. Yes, um, I agree with Sam, definitely, you know, opening um, places and uh, for, you know, young people to continue, you know, complete their studies, you know, having a degree. Um, also considering, you know, to have refugees, giving them actually legal status, you know, and, and acknowledge them that, they are refugees here because um, this will not only help us, you know, with education, it will also help us having, you know, right to work, provide for our families without having the fear of being arrested um, because we're working illegally. Or, for example, having protection from, you know, the places refugees work at, you know, 
uh, because they are considered illegal, there is very, you know, worsening conditions uh, for them to work in, I'd say. Um, and if, if that is not possible from, let's say, a political, uh, you know, view, individuals can also help refugees, you know, like Malaysians, which they already, a lot of Malaysians really do great help, you know, with refugee learning centers and all of that. And so imagine if more of the public helped refugees, you know, donating their time to do uh, uh, learning centers to help, you know, provide, you know, a course, for example, or teach a course, that itself will also be a great help. Yeah. And, you know, Abira, I think you make a, a, an important point about the right to work for refugees. I think, you know, the legal recognition of refugees isn't just to benefit refugees, but it could potentially benefit Malaysia. And I, I personally don't really like to make the economic argument for why we should grant refugees and migrants legal status. But I think that sometimes it is important to point out that, you know, financially and economically, if Malaysia were to grant refugees the right to work, there's a study by the think tank Ideas that estimates that refugees could contribute a, an increase to over 3 billion ringgit by 2024 to Malaysia's GDP. So, you know, that through higher spending. And so that's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's uh, not just refugees who stand to benefit from legal recognition, but, you know, Malaysia as a country as well, you know, which I, I think some, sometimes people don't realize. Um, so, you know, just as a last question, do you both have any final messages you'd like to leave for our listeners? Just, um, I just want to say, uh, well, thank you so much for actually inviting us and, you know, having, uh, providing us with a platform to share our opinions on this matter. And just wanted to say, you know, that the view of, you know, being a refugee here um, and having some stereotypes around refugees and etc. Um, I just want to say, don't, uh, if you see a refugee and then you see all the news written, you know, or people's opinion about how refugees are affecting badly in, in the society, for example, I'd say don't really believe that and instead actually speak to a refugee, you know, try to understand their stories and that itself will help, you know, the people to understand refugees' point of view that we are not here to, uh, because we want to be here forever. It's that we are here for our safety and we don't want to um, be back in our countries to have, you know, accept a very, a bad faith, for example. Okay. Um, and yeah, that is something I would want to say just to, learn more from refugees and their stories and what they have to say instead of, you know, having, um, believing stereotypes, for example. Thanks, Avira. And what about you, Sam? Okay. Um, just wanted to, wanted to say thank you to all of the people that are patiently listening to us, our conversations and 
Thank you very much, uh, Deborah, for making this uh, our voice uh, more loud. I mean, louder. So, uh, for being as a refugee here in Malaysia for many years, um, so I just like to say the people around me and also whoever listened to this uh, conversations and we all are human being, but we have a very uh, bad stories and sad stories behind us. We just wanted to ourselves to be like overcome all the bad dreams and all the happenings and what happened in our bad country. We just wanted to forget and want just, just wanted to stay as a normal people life. So sometimes uh, you may see the refugee as a very obvious or maybe something like it is not the same like, like uh, local people or something like that because of our background. And thank you very much for being patient with us for many years and uh, understand and being a good neighbors to our refugee people as well. So uh, please support uh, from your side as much as possible to all the refugee people, whoever that you see are uh, needing and also in, uh, in many other ways as well. Thank you so much, everyone. I hope that and pray for God that God bless everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks to both of you for joining me today. And I think that's all. Um, I'm wishing you both a good rest of the week and stay safe. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you so much for your interview as well. We hope that uh, many people can hear our voices as well. Thank you. I got to hear from your point of view and you're learning about your center as well. It was good. <laughs> Thank you. Our thanks to Sam and Abira for joining us on this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches. Next week, be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda, our podcast series on current affairs in Singapore. This is Deborah, wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Jumpa lagi!